So, uh, good evening everyone. Welcome to the Irish Embassy. My name is Adrian O'Neill um, and I'm the uh, Ambassador of Ireland. Uh, I'm delighted to see a full house, or practically a full house. I can't imagine what the attraction is. Um, it, it's amazing what an editorial in the sun will do for your interest profile. <laughs> All attention gratefully received. Um, but we're delighted to be hosting, uh, hosting this event tonight with the Centre for European Reform with whom we've had an excellent relationship uh, over the years. And I'm very pleased to welcome Charles Grant, the director of the centre, just recently back from Brussels, uh, as well as Ian Bond, foreign policy director uh, for the centre, and the rest of their team who are here tonight. I also welcome our guests from the House of Commons and the House of Lords, who span the spectrum of political affiliation in Westminster, and representatives from Whitehall, the think tank community, business and the media. Uh, but a special welcome to our speakers this evening, uh, Dr. Edward Burke, who is an assistant professor in international relations at the University of Nottingham, uh, and the author of the policy brief that is being launched tonight, entitled Ulster's Fight, Ulster's Rights, Brexit, Northern Ireland, and the Threat to British-Irish Relations. Also, Keelan Gallagher, QC, a public law specialist with Doughty Street Chambers who will respond to the paper. Keelan is a graduate of University College Dublin, the King's Inn in Dublin and Cambridge University. Carolyn Quinn, uh, a journalist uh, who will be well known uh, to many of you as the host of the Westminster Hour on BBC Radio 4 and Carolyn has ger uh, generously agreed to moderate the discussion afterwards. Uh, but first of all, a, a message from your sponsors, so to speak. Um, the 10th of April next year will mark the 20th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, the multi-party agreement and international treaty that paved the way for an end to 30 years of conflict in Northern Ireland. And uh, in his paper, Dr. Burke poses the question, does Brexit now threaten the fragile compromises that have mostly kept the peace for almost 20 years? As we approach a critical juncture in the negotiations on the UK exit from the EU, this is a question that goes to the heart of why the Irish issues have been accorded such priority by the EU 27 during the first phase, alongside the financial settlement and citizens' rights. A great, dis a great distance has been travelled over the last two decades in securing peace in Northern Ireland and advancing the totality of relations across these islands. Despite occasional stresses and strains, and we're going through one such moment, great progress has been made in normalising political relationships in Ireland. Indeed, it was in this building uh, in 2004 that the first formal meeting between the leadership of the DUP and the then Irish government took place. The provisions of the Good Friday Agreement relating to North-South cooperation have also made a significant contribution to the improvement of people's lives on the island as have the institutions dealing with the wider East-West relationships, particularly the British-Irish Council and the British-Irish Parliamentary Association. And indeed, some people in the room this evening may indeed have participated, at least in the latter. We want to ensure that this process of normalisation and of cooperation to mutual benefit can continue in a dynamic way. For this to be sustained, maintaining a land border that is, for all practical purposes, open and invisible, is absolutely essential, politically, economically, socially, and symbolically. 
ensuring that the achievements of the past uh, of the last 20 years of peace and cooperation are not damaged and that the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is fully protected are fundamental objectives, not just for Ireland, but for the EU as a whole. I know this is also true of the British government, who fully share the same objectives. Genuine progress has already been made on some fronts in the Brexit discussions, including the maintenance of the long-standing common travel area between Ireland and the United Kingdom, and the reciprocal rights it confers on Irish and British citizens. But in regard to the land border, we have yet to find the flexible and imaginative solutions which are needed. We certainly welcome the British government's stated objective of avoiding physical border infrastructure. However, to ensure the outcome we all want to see, we still need more assurance from the UK government, and that requirement is an a negotiating focus of these current intensive weeks ahead of the December European Council. Yes, every detail cannot be resolved at this stage, but what is needed is a firm commitment from the UK that the final outcome will maintain the openness and invisibility, and invisibility that characterises the border today, with its 300 crossings along 300 miles, and that such an outcome will respect Ireland's position and related responsibilities as an EU member state. As our Minister for Foreign Affairs said when he visited London earlier this month, with enough will, determination, creativity and imagination, such progress is within reach. The Irish government is working towards clear goals. We want to protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and the peace process maintain the open border and the continuation of the common travel area. We are also very anxious to ensure an orderly and well-managed exit by the UK from the European Union. A no-deal cliff edge is in nobody's interests. And once we get to phase two of the negotiations, we will work hard for as close as possible an EU-UK relationship as possible, not least in trading terms. Because the closer we can make a future EU-UK relationship, the easier it will be to sustain a close bilateral relationship between Ireland and the, and the United Kingdom. I'm conscious that the issue we discuss is a sensitive one, and that it is all too easy to view it through the prism of orange and green. And we must resus resist that impulse. Finding an effective solution to the issue of the border should not be reduced to a binary constitutional issue. And if we do so, it will actually restrict the space for the flexibility and imagination we need to find a solution to Brexit. So tonight's gathering, therefore, could not possibly be more timely, and I look forward to hearing the views of our speakers, and I encourage you all to participate in what I hope is an informed and engaging discussion. And before we hear from Dr. Edward Burke, who will present his paper, can I call upon Ian Bond of the Centre for European Reform to say a few words. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador. Um, I just want to say on behalf of the Centre for European Reform, first of all, that we are extremely grateful to the Irish Embassy for their hospitality this evening. Uh, and for helping us to put together such an outstanding audience. 
when we commissioned Ed Burke to write this paper, uh, we thought that this was an important and rather under-researched area. Uh, I don't think we knew quite how important it was going to be by the time we came to, uh, to launch his paper. The paper was actually published in July, and uh, even at that time, some of its predictions looked rather um, alarmist. Four months on, uh, they look a lot more realistic. Anyway, I think it's a, it's a really first-rate paper. Um, I'm very grateful indeed to the embassy for um, enabling us to launch it here this evening. Uh, I'm grateful to uh, Keelan Gallagher and to Caroline Quinn for uh, joining Ed on the platform to, uh, to discuss the paper, and I look forward to all of us leaving here this evening illuminated uh, and perhaps with a few more ideas for solutions to these tricky problems. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Um, I'm very grateful for the invitation from the Irish Embassy to, to be here this evening. I look forward to the conversation that hopefully our brief presentations will kickstart tonight. I'm also ex exceptionally grateful to my former employers, um, dear friends at the Centre for European Reform, Charles Granty and Bond, and the rest of their team uh, for commissioning this paper. Um, it, it was a fascinating and, as you can imagine, um, incredibly difficult uh, research project. But living as I was in Newton Ards in County Down at the time, um, and with my, my family, Northern Irish, well, from County Down, me from West Cork, um, working in England, um, PhD from Scotland. This is quite personal to some extent, as you can imagine. Um, and indeed, uh, Brexit happened two days after my wedding. Uh, so <laughs> threatened several times by my now wife not to mention it in my speech at, at the wedding. Somehow I managed to observe that instruction. Um, at the CR Future of Europe conference in Brussels on Monday, former Irish teacher John Bruton was remarkably blunt. According to Bruton, it's normal, civilized, interstate behavior to take an intelligent interest in the predictable consequences of things you do for your immediate neighbors. That norm was not adhered to by the UK when it decided to quit the single market and the customs union. These were blunt, angry words from the man who was dubbed by Sinn Féin as John Unionist because of his determination to reach out to Ulster Protestants and his commitment to improving British-Irish relations as Taoiseach. In the past few days, the current Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, has also threatened, as you know, to veto any movement onto phase two of Brexit negotiations unless Ireland receives assurances from the UK that there will be no return to a hard border. Successive Irish Taoiseach have indeed arguably worked much harder than the counterparts in number 10 to provide an answer to Britain's so-called Irish question. The Good Friday Agreement marked a paradigm shift away from a narrowly vicious focus on sovereignty to one of collective cooperation and respect, enabled by a shared EU membership and a soft border. Now, less than two decades on, Britain has found a second question, Brexit, that threatens to undo attempts to answer the first. It shouldn't take a supreme leap of imagination for leading conservatives to sympathize with Ireland, but many, as indeed Tijik Leo Varadkar observed, do not seem to have thought things through when it comes to the Irish border and the threat to the peace process. The Taoiseach is also evidently frustrated with Ulster Unionism. The onus, he says, should be on the Brexiteers, particularly the DUP, to come up with solutions to mitigate the worst effects of Brexit. The Taoiseach has called the border of the past a brutal physical manifestation of historic divisions and political failure. Most unionists clearly don't see it that way. 
1910, Arlene Foster's paternal grandfather, Nathaniel Kelly, was a mid-sized farmer near Dernawilt, Rosslea, just along the border, a few miles from what is now the current border. And he was able to employ a labourer, and the centre of his commercial world very much was the town of Clonus in County Monaghan. Although Protestant farmers in Dernawilt tried to establish a creamery after the imposition of the border, it failed within a few years, and the Kelly family turned to other activities. John Kelly, Arlene Foster's father, of course, served as a policeman, protecting the integrity of the border and worked for the electricity board in Lisnesky in County Fermanagh. Again and again, Ulster Unionists have shown a willingness to ignore economic expediency in favour of maintaining a closer union with Britain. Identity indeed has to begin somewhere, and for many Northern Irish men and women, that is the border. What is seen as the legacy of political failure in Dublin will of course be celebrated in Belfast in 2021 as the outstanding achievement of Ulster Unionism. That perhaps explains the long manifested antipathy of Ulster Unionism to the European Union. The EU may have brought increased economic prosperity, but by blurring, blurring borders it also diluted symbols of British sovereignty on the island of Ireland, and that has caused unease and contradictory responses. Evidenced by former First Minister Arlene Foster talking about EU funds being vital to Northern Ireland's economy in 2015, but then campaigning for a leave vote in 2016. The EU has paid for and underpinned so much of the Good Friday Agreement, but that, shouldn't but that couldn't persuade Nobel Prize uh, Peace Laureate Lord Trimble to vote Remain in the, in the referendum. So there is a, se a seemingly irre irreconcilable dualism in unionism today. The DUP does indeed not want a hard border, but as a senior Northern Irish civil servant told me, we will get there anyway. Unionists predict that Sinn Féin will, of course, be in government in Dublin within a decade. And if Northern Ireland is indeed separated from Great Britain, has separate relations with the EU from Great Britain, such as remaining in the customs union, then there is an intolerable image that comes to the unionist mind of not only Northern Ireland being, in effect, represented by Dublin in its relations with the EU, but also for, for Sinn Féin ministers in Dublin to have leverage where unionists have none. Moreover, unionists are far from convinced that there is an economically rational case for Northern Ireland remaining in the customs union and are the single market. Northern Irish manufacturing sales to Great Britain are worth six times more than those to the Republic of Ireland. And for local agri-food, the percentage of sales within the UK stands at 75%. Consequently, any Irish kites that are flown about customs border in the Irish Sea are likely to be pulled down almost immediately as unionist MPs in Westminster queue up to denounce such political and economic absurdity from Dublin. So what, if anything, can be done to avoid worsening relations between the Irish government and the DUP and between London and Dublin? First, the Irish government needs to engage in a sustained dialogue with elements of the Conservative Party that back a more pragmatic Brexit. Irish ministers are understandably very concerned that they are not seen as Britain's advocates in Brussels, especially since the UK was indeed Ireland's closest partner among EU member states before Brexit. Such an initiative should not be seen as breaking ranks, but rather as an effort by the UK's closest partner to persuade London to adopt a better course. In other words, what can I, we need to think about what Ireland and the EU can do to influence and help those British policymakers who wish to persuade the UK into a more realistic negotiating position on Brexit. Right now, there is, you know, there has been a drawing of lines, two sides, and it's sometimes very difficult to dialogue horizontally, um, as we are doing tonight. This is an attempt people from different political persuasions to try and talk through um, what we think is realistic, what we think is a good negotiating position for the UK 
and indeed for the future of relationships on these islands that we share. Irish diplomats in London are well known for their knowledge of UK affairs and subtle but efficient perseverance. That engagement has become more difficult since the Irish government issued instructions that the UK had to unilaterally come up with solutions to a Brexit of its own making. Irish officials cannot be seen as being too helpful in coming up with post-Brexit options for the UK that might jeopardise EU-UK negotiations. And indeed, that is an understandable position to take in Dublin. So when the UK government published a paper on Northern Ireland in the summer, a number of Irish ministers correctly pointed out that it was rich in vague aspirations, but it was frustratingly impoverished when it came to detail. But reading the footnotes, and academics love footnotes, um, the UK government did note that the EU had, in exceptional circumstances, put in place special arrangements to, to facilitate trade between EU countries in areas outside the EU. They pointed to Croatia and Bosnia, they pointed to Ceuta and Maia, and a number of other exceptional, um, exceptional areas where the EU had come up with imaginative solutions. Special arrangements are very difficult to work out, but there are indeed EU precedents in respect to quotas and exemptions for certain goods if they meet EU standards. Nevertheless, there would still be a need for occasional checks, customs inspections, etc. The UK concluded that such precedents might indeed be useful in the case of Northern Ireland. This is a potential glimmer of light if, as now seems very possible, Prime Minister, Prime Minister Theresa May continues to insist that the UK will leave the single market and the customs union. It is, it is likely that to, indeed to, to survive as leader of the Conservative Party into the new year, she cannot yield to Irish demands that the UK should stay within the customs union, or at least allow Northern Ireland to stay within the customs union. Leo Varadkar may have set a very understandable ultimatum for December's summit, but it may also be unrealistic in the context of British politics. The UK and RNI might indeed yet stay in the customs union, but that will not be decided between now and the summit in December. The time is not yet right for a push in that direction within the Conservative Party. Collapsing Brexit talks may even, or even stalling them for a long for a period, may even embolden those on the right of the Conservative Party rather than having a chastening effect. So we need to think about the effects we have on domestic British politics here in London. Dublin also may need to swallow its anger when it comes to the DUP. While a number of DUP MPs talk up the exceptional trade opportunities of Brexit, it appears to me that Arlene Foster, and indeed a number of MLAs in Northern Ireland, are more worried. Arlene Foster has increasingly noted the risk to Northern Ireland's economy arising from a hard Brexit. She needs a way out of the current impasse and arguably would like to see the UK stay in the customs union. However, she cannot state that without giving fuel to those, particularly her political opponents in Sinn Féin, who would use such words as a pole to try and keep Northern Ireland in the customs union even if Great Britain is outside, something the DUP clearly does not want. Uh, what Foster needs are conservative allies in London who can win over their party to avoid a hard Brexit. She will remain silent until she is certain that there is such a majority, at least within the British cabinet. Irish officials should discreetly but persistently reach out to the DUP and its supporters on the question of Brexit, particularly at the very local level in Northern Ireland. There are a number of, there are a number of constructive steps that even if, even if, Northern Ireland or the UK doesn't stay in the customs union, we do have to now think about if, if, the current, if, the current, if the current policy remains that the UK is indeed leaving the customs union and the single market, there are still a number of constructive steps that we can think about. First is a near unilateral one for the EU. It can maintain funding for special peace programs in Northern Ireland, regardless of future UK contributions to the budget. 
Second, it may still be possible for Northern Ireland to opt back into the common agricultural policy after Brexit. Agriculture has already devolved responsibility of the Northern Ireland Executive, and Taoiseach Louis Leo Varadkar has indicated his support for such a proposal. Varadkar has also urged London to consider negotiating access for Northern Ireland to EU structural funds that economically support vital programmes in border regions, for example. Much would, of course, depend on whether Great Britain and Northern Ireland continue to mirror agricultural and food safety, food safety standards, mirror EU agricultural and food safety standards. But some agreement or convergence in agriculture and agri-food may indeed be possible, even in the event that the UK leaves the single market and customs union. Third, in the event of a failure to quickly agree a comprehensive free trade, free trade agreement with the UK, the EU could work with London to create a specific regime for Northern Irish goods and services, including and beyond agri-food, essentially exempting them from tariffs and most customs checks. This would build upon the EU's experience that I alluded to earlier of putting in place exceptional measures elsewhere, such as with Croatia-Bosnia, Croatia, Spain's relationship with Ceuta, Mia, etc. This option will be extremely complicated. I don't doubt that for a second. But it cannot be discarded just yet if we need to go there. Indeed, as Michel Barnier said on Monday, Northern Ireland already has specific rules in many areas that are different to the rest of the UK, particularly when it comes to dealing with agriculture. Fourth, pending a UK exit from the customs union, a swiftly negotiated joint EU-UK customs agreement would ease bureaucratic pressures and costs. As, as with the border between Norway and uh, Sweden, much of the necessary clearance could be done online. UK customs officials could process EU paperwork and collect tariffs, passing them to the EU so that the goods could cross the Irish border without further checks or form filling. Again, this is, this is not ideal. This is costly. This is a structural barrier to trade, but it is, again, something that we may need to think about. Fifth, an already overstretched security infrastructure, particularly south of the border, will require significant investment, particularly on the Irish side. Both governments must expect increased criminality and an escalated security threat along the border. London will need to further deepen its bilateral security arrangements with Dublin so that the UK and Irish officials, so the UK and Irish officials can engage in joint planning and respond to security customs and immigration requirements particularly if the UK is unable to rejoin various justice and home affairs measures and agencies after it leaves the EU. A strengthened British Council could offer a forum for working groups in the absence of access, access to EU institutions or tools such as a European arrest, arrest warrant. Again, I hope this doesn't happen, but we need to think down the line what is possible if, if the UK doesn't deviate from its, from its, from its course. Um, there are grounds for optimism that the administration and policing of the movement of people under the auspices of the CTA can be worked out to both parties' satisfaction. London and Dublin have already pointed, agreed joint visa arrangements, allowing visitors to one country to freely travel to the other. But Dublin may indeed be limited by the European Court of Justice judgments in, in what data it can share with the UK. It all depends on how the UK, what, how it opts into Justice and Home Affairs, whether they're willing to subject, submit themselves to the jurisdiction in some areas of the European Court of Justice, come up with a joint court mechanism, etc. Again, but we have to think about, about other potential options. After the collapse of the Northern Irish Executive, Belfast very much lost its vote and the potential to project a view on how to mitigate the dangers of Brexit. Instead of working together on committees in Belfast, unionists and nationalists increasingly operate in separate information silos one via London predominantly and the other predominantly through Dublin. Brexit has added indeed much poison to attempts to re-establish the executive of the late. Post-Brexit relations between Dublin and London are delicately poised. Poorly phrased statements, editorials, or a breakdown in negotiations in Brussels have the potential to damage years of productive diplomacy and excellent relations. 
a return to a more overt, less compromising Irish nationalism on both sides of the border appears likely. Should EU-UK negotiations end badly, with few or no exemptions or special status for Northern Ireland, then the North will, will tip into a maelstrom of political recrimination and very potentially an economic recession. In such a scenario, I would predict that Sinn Féin will offer a more populist approach, a united Ireland as the only solution. Loyalists will undoubtedly respond in turn, possibly with violence. The potential for dangerous escalation is, is obvious. Thank you. Dr. Burke, thank you very much indeed. Um, it is indeed timely, isn't it, uh, the work that you're doing in Prime Minister's questions today. Theresa May referred again. She was asked about it by Jeremy Corbyn, who uh, quoted somebody, I think you'll recognize this, they've had 17 months to come up with an answer to this question, but they haven't come up with an answer, uh, quoting Leo Varadkar, of course, who said it's 18 months since the referendum, 10 years since people started agitating for a referendum, and sometimes it seems like they've not thought all this through. Um, Theresa May today at Prime Minister's Questions did say we are clear that in relation to the common travel area that will continue as it has since 1923 and on trade we will not see a hard border being introduced but of course the conundrum is that Theresa May says uh, we can't discuss the hard border in detail until we know what the trade deal is so that's where the conundrum continues. Um, Anyway, you will have lots of opportunity to ask questions of our guests here. But let me introduce now Keelan Gallagher, QC, to give her response. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and first of all, I just want to pay tribute to uh, the Centre for European Reform and to Dr. Edward Burke for what is indeed a very timely and superb contribution to an important debate, a debate which many of us in the room, I suspect, think should have taken place prior to June 2016, but it is belatedly taking place now, and this is a very important contribution to that debate. I wanted to start by touching on four initial comments. Uh, the first one is um, that for many people in the room who are Irish living in the UK, uh, you may sympathise when I say that Northern Ireland often seems to me to be a blind spot in Westminster, and indeed a blind spot in England, or indeed in Great Britain. Uh, those of you who um, got as irritated as I did uh, when you saw the Team GB t-shirts for the Olympics, I was quite tempted to go around with a red pen and write at plus NI, uh, will recognize that there seems to be a tendency sometimes for people to conflate the terms English, British, UK, without acknowledging particular issues which arise in relation to Northern Ireland. And nowhere is that more true than in relation to Brexit. Even the term itself, the terminology, focuses upon England, Wales, Scotland, Brexit, Britain's exit. Of course, Northern Ireland is part of the UK. It's not part of Britain. And the language itself uh, reflects that the debate was not focused on Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland has come to this debate for many as very much an afterthought. And that is a matter of regret uh, to me and to many in the room, um, I suspect. Uh, and I do think that that's a tendency which I've seen in other ways. Um, Professor Chris McCrudden describes it as a tone deafness amongst those in power. And myself and a colleague at Doughty Street Chambers 
have used the phrase Westminster's blind spot when referring to it. It's a similar tendency which we saw, for example, when there was media coverage about the riots in London, when reference was made to this being the first time in very many years when water cannon had been used in the UK. And again, there was just not an acknowledgement uh, that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. So that's the first thing to say. The second uh, initial comment that I wanted to make of the four is uh, I think we need to bear very much in mind the reference made by the ambassador, which is very important, to not viewing this through the simplistic prism of orange and green in a binary way. Uh, when we look at the vote in Northern Ireland in June 2016, it was a 55.7% vote to remain, almost 56%. That isn't a nationalist vote. That is a cross-community vote. And it's very important that we bear that in mind. This is an issue of cross-community concern. It is not simply an issue which we can categorize as being concerned for nationalists, unionists in, in a homogenous group who take a particular view. And that's reflected if we look, for example, at the August 2016 joint letter from Arlene Foster and from the late Martin McGuinness, raising concerns about the unique vulnerabilities of Northern Ireland. So within weeks, you had a cross-party recognition of the fact that Northern Ireland is different and Northern Ireland raises specific concerns. Now, whilst the language, for example, of special status has become for some toxic because it's uh, associated with particular groups, uh, when you analyse the language that's used by Arlene Foster in that joint letter in August 2016, or indeed in the other comments which uh, Dr Burke referred to uh, since, uh, and when you look at that, and when you look at the position that's been adopted by Sinn Féin, the SDLP, the Alliance Party, and you look at many of the comments emanating from unionist politicians and unionist groupings, uh, you will see that there is a recognition, whether the phrase special status is used or not, that Northern Ireland is special, Northern Ireland is different, Northern Ireland presents unique challenges. And I do think we must bear that in mind rather than thinking simplistically orange uh, and green, uh, because this isn't a tribal issue, it's a cross-community issue. And similarly, I think, when you look at the elections in Northern Ireland, um, including those on the 2nd of March this year, you'll see that some of those traditional lines appear to be broken down. So that's the next preliminary point I wanted to make. Uh, thirdly, I think it's important, and I'm conscious that in the room we do have people representing um, Scottish and Welsh parties, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that whilst Brexit raises very particular concerns related to the deep asymmetry of the United Kingdom and raises concerns for Scotland and Wales as well as Northern Ireland, uh, there are particular um, additional difficulties in relation to Northern Ireland which must be uh, acknowledged. And uh, in a report which I and a colleague did for the European Parliament, we've highlighted that. Um, and it's right that while there are constitutionally complex and practical issues arising for Scotland and Wales, and of course there's a similar democratic legitimacy question mark arising for Scotland, given their vote um, in the referendum, uh, Northern Ireland is very different. I'm not sure how many of you have heard the uh, joke about an Englishman, a Scotsman, and an Irishman go into a bar uh, and the Englishman decides that he wants to leave, and they all have to get out, uh, which I have heard uh, from many people um, over the last number of months when doing work uh, on Brexit in the European Parliament and in Parliament here and with many uh, groupings. So I, I do understand and sympathise with the view that there are similar issues raised for Scotland, but I do think for Northern Ireland, for the reasons which are set out in this report and elsewhere, Northern Ireland is very different, uh, not only because of the geography, and there's actually a very powerful quote uh, from the Conservative Lord Cope of Berkeley, 
um, and this is how he put it during a debate in the House of Lords on the 5th of September 2017. Uh, there's been some media talk about closing the border again, but anyone who thinks that it, it can be a closed border does not know the border. Neither President Trump nor even Benjamin Netanyahu could build a wall along it, uh, which I thought was an interesting take. Um, but, uh, of course, a, a key part, a, a key thing which we must remember is the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement means that constitutionally Northern Ireland is in a wholly different position uh, to Scotland and Wales. And that must be borne in mind uh, as we go forward. Uh, the final uh, one of the initial comments I wanted to make just relates to, it's been referred to uh, in passing, or indirectly, and in the comments of the Ambassador and indeed by Dr Burke, but the suggestion in the last number of weeks uh, that the Irish government has caused difficulty by raising the unexpected issue uh, of the border is really quite nonsensical. Uh, and uh, there was a headline in The Sun last week, which some of you will have seen, and this is what it said, Ireland's naive young Prime Minister should shut his gob on Brexit and grow up. So interesting in a sentence to tell someone to grow up whilst also telling them to shut their gob. But, but that language, and indeed the language which was used in a Telegraph piece uh, recently about the unexpected issue of the Irish border, suggesting that somehow with Leo Varadkar has come this uh, issue out of the blue, uh, which couldn't have been predicted, it is simply nonsensical in my view. Uh, and uh, I have... Uh, heard in the work that I'm doing, which is cross-party work, an acknowledgement um, of that, uh, and I think that that is quite important. Um, the concerns which have been raised by the Irish government have been raised repeatedly before the referendum and after the referendum. They've persisted despite a change of Taoiseach, despite a change of Minister for Foreign Affairs. These are not unexpected issues. The issues raised by Leo Varadkar and by Simon Coveney have been on the agenda uh, for a very long time. And when you trace back um, statements and speeches throughout 2016, in late 2015, that has been a consistent message and a consistent uh, position. I very much agree uh, with Dr. Burke and with others, and indeed this is also a cross-party view, uh, that flexible and imaginative solutions are required, uh, particularly given the special circumstances of Northern Ireland. That now appears to be acknowledged by all. Uh, it is a serious concern to me that almost 18 months since the vote, uh, we are still speaking at levels of generality and not engaging with the detail on what a particular model should look like. And that is why I think this report is so important to actually get that debate going on the detail. Um, those of you who will have seen the EU Parliament vote on the 3rd of October 2017 uh, will have seen that there was an overwhelming view of the European Parliament that the UK is falling short of its responsibilities in relation to Northern Ireland, and it was very critical. And uh, whilst I have great sympathy with that, and it's a view that I share, I, I do think that the need to progress the debate and think about specifically what the model should be is not simply a matter for Westminster. It's also a matter for the Irish government. It's also a matter for the EU 27. And it's not good enough to say the ball should be in Westminster's court. It's their mess. They need to sort it out. It is a responsibility on all of us to start creating those flexible and imaginative solutions and engaging with the detail. Um, over the 18 months, the only real model which we've seen, and I'm calling it a, a model, but that's um, probably a little inaccurate, was uh, the reference which was made in March 2017 by David Davis when he was giving evidence to a Westminster committee, when he uh, ruled out the use of border posts, very welcome to uh, us in the room, and proposed a digital border with security cameras, pre-registered cargo as an alternative to a land border. 
And he said, it's not going to be easy. It's going to cost us money, a lot of work developing the technology to put border controls in, but without having border posts. But that is what we intend to do. And that was also a position echoed in the position paper in relation to Ireland. Now, that position has been criticised for a number of different reasons by a number of different voices. Uh, Simon Coveney, the uh, current Minister for Foreign Affairs, has said that such electronic solutions are unworkable. And in any event, any barrier or border risks undermining a very hard-won peace process. Uh, in a superb piece by Dr. Katie Hayward of Queen's University Belfast, uh, she criticised what she called the crude assumption that by hard border you simply mean visible border. And she went on to say uh, the real impact of a hard border hits far away from the actual crossing. It's felt in the obstacles to trade, to supply chains, to employment catchment areas, and so on. Uh, and she indicated that, in her view, to posit technological solutions at this stage is like trying to decide on the light fittings before you've even got planning permission for the house, uh, which was quite uh, powerful. Uh, and, of course, some of the political language went further, so Labour accused Mr Davis of planning a fantasy frontier and so on. Um, it, it, looking forward, uh, it is clear that the EU has a long history of being willing to agree a very, very wide range of differentiated packages when it needs to for geographical or political reasons or other social reasons. And um, in the report that I mentioned earlier, which uh, Dr. Burke and I um, were discussing, um, which myself and Katie O'Brien did, we did run through a number of those models. Um, so, for example, uh, just to give you a small number of uh, the examples, um, there are a number of states with different types of membership with the European Union, such as, for example, Norway, not a member state of the EU, but a member state of the EEA, uh, Switzerland, Turkey, Canada. And then there's a range of examples, uh, there's eight in particular, uh, which we've gone through in detail in our document, uh, where arrangements have been made which differentiate between different parts of a state. So Greenland, Cyprus, there's an acknowledgement that different parts of Greenland, different parts of Cyprus need to be treated uh, differently, for example. So there are potential ways through that are legally possible. The real question is what is politically possible and moving forward the political uh, debate. And that can be done in many, many ways. And it is incumbent on all of those involved in this process to come up urgently with workable solutions. Uh, I don't believe that EU bodies or the Irish government should wait. And I think it's very welcome that the Irish government has been attempting to progress and engage with the detail, it's incumbent on us to craft creative solutions. And also, it's incumbent, I think, upon all those involved in the process, not to simply set red lines, uh, but to engage constructively with other proposals. And simply dismissing alternative proposals as, for example, politically unworkable, or not viable given red lines which have been set, is, in my view, irresponsible given the policy vacuum. And it seems to me that Northern Ireland is entitled to and deserves much more from the UK, uh, and indeed, it, it deserves much more uh, from the rest of us who are involved in this debate. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is